Welcome to the ATP podcast, which for the final time this year comes from Melbourne Park. I'm Chris Bowers, joined as I have been all tournament by my fellow AO radio commentator Peter Mercato and the former WTA player Jill Krabus. And we begin with the men's final, a final that produced another remarkable chapter in the remarkable history of Novak Djokovic. This is how Peter called the final point on AO radio. Championship point. Djokovic down the tee. Forehand from Sitsipas is deep. Working now to the backhand of Sitsipas. Backhand to backhand, both players. And now Djokovic are willing to one up the line. He's just made it. Block back from Sitsipas. It goes long! And it is 10 of the absolute best for Novak Djokovic. He owns this court. And he is back in style. A superb tournament again. He wins the 2023 Australian Open. He returns to the world number one ranking and he has won major number 22. Well, it wasn't perhaps the greatest final, Peter, but what did you make of where it stands in history? Novak Djokovic won his first title here in 2008. In 2023, he's playing like he was playing in 2008. He dropped one set and I reckon Enzo Cuoco is feeling really good about himself right now. It was personal this year. Absolutely a man on a mission, totally focused, wins in Adelaide, comes here, continues it on. The fact that he is still right at the very top of his game and about a hundred thousand of his nearest to dearest, it feels, is right near us right now as he's making an appearance just in the studio above where we are right now. But it shows you the love that he's got here. He spoke really well afterwards. The emotion that came out after the performance, which was clinical in the end, showed how much it meant to him. I've never seen that emotion from Djokovic after a major final before, but he dismantled Tsitsipas. He was far too good, and he's been the best player for AO 2023. I was uh, in Djokovic's press conference after his quarterfinal victory, and I said to him, because of the injury and because of what happened last year, is there actually added determination? And I thought he'd say, oh, no, no, I'm always determined. And in fact, he said, you know, I'm always determined. And then he said, but yes, I am. There's more determination this year, which is really interesting. That is really interesting, and we're hearing some chanting as well. Wow, there's, he has a lot of fans. The entire grounds have fans and Serbian flags everywhere. But yes, I think I think he's always been determined. He's all that's just a part of his character. He's always going to bring that motivation and determination every single time. But I think everything he went through last year to be able to overcome all that is absolutely phenomenal. I mean, the the amount of mental strength that he has I don't know where he gets it from but it's just phenomenal what he's able to produce after everything he's gone through last year and to be able to come back and and win this with so much on the line is phenomenal it's his 10th Australian title it's his 22nd Grand Slam title he's back to world number one does this title change anything about his place in history um, I think he's always going for more I mean I think yes it, I think we saw it meant so much to him not I think you know, he said in his post-match um, on-court interview that everything that they've gone through in the last 12 months, that's why the emotions came pouring out because they were putting so much effort into everything to get to this historical moment. So, yes, I think it does change things for him. I mean, I don't think it changes anything as far as wanting to strive for more at all. No, and I agree. And I think, you know, he's there's no reason why he can't. He's at 22 now, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, and be at the top of the game for another good five years even I mean the, the form that he's in um, if Bozzi stays healthy it would just it, no one can lay a glove on him when he's in that sort of form and his fans are as strong as ever as you can hear in the background here cheering everything he does 
he's right above us at the moment with the trophy and that's why the fans have been travelling with him. But listen to this support that he's getting around the world. And he take this confidence that he's got out of this tournament. He structures Grand Slam so well. And the younger ones coming through aren't there yet because it's that best three out of five dynamic that they can't quite crack. And that's the big thing with Djokovic. Think in historical terms still. The leading Grand Slam winner in singles is Margaret Court. But an awful lot of hers were before everybody went to Australia. She won a lot of her Australian titles before it was the Australian Open and uh, without full fields. Serena Williams won 23. Djokovic has won 22. If he were to get up to 23 or even 24, does that change anything? Because many people thought the court would never be uh, reached. Well, they never thought that someone would win 10 Australian Opens either, but we continue. Djokovic continues to push the boundaries of where this sport can actually go. And it was mentioned by Sitsipas in the post-match uh, presentations that he takes it to a new level every time. And the fact that he's able to maintain that level, even with the ones coming after him, shows how extraordinary he is. I mean, what it'll do is it'll enhance the, uh, the what we call the pub debates about who's the best player of all time. But, you know, he's standing, he's already an immortal in this sport anyway. He's just going to keep enhancing that now. And he just wants to continue on with that. Well, I, I, I just want to say one thing about the final in particular. With how much we're talking about how amazing Djokovic played, it's pretty incredible Sitsipas was able to push him to two tie-break sets, in my opinion. So he was there, and he had opportunities because Djokovic was playing insane. So that is that's a huge effort. Having said that, you're right, Sitsipas mentioned, like, you're the best player to ever hold a tennis racket and I think we're witnessing that more and more the the way that Djokovic is continuing to rise to the occasion to always uplift his game and look for more and try and be better it's exceptional I mean there's nothing like it. Tsitsipas praised Djokovic for elevating his own game Tsitsipas's own game because he's so good and in many ways Djokovic won this with his retrieving because Tsitsipas had to go for so much in the final eventually ended up making mistakes in particular in the two tie breaks. I know his movement was off the charts today. I mean, we know how well he can move, how well he covers the court. But yesterday, I felt like it was even another level, the way that he was able to stretch and get so many of these balls back because Sitsipas was hitting a ton. I mean, there were... We were down in the bunker, and I was talking to some other uh, former players that were courtside, and they were just in awe with how both players were hitting the ball with such pace, such power. So when you add that element in as well, and the fact that Djokovic retrieve that wall is incredible. Where does this leave Tsitsipas? Because it's his second Grand Slam final. He's been thwarted by Djokovic on both occasions. Is he making progress or while Djokovic remains at this level, is there an irretrievable obstacle? Yeah, I mean how does he win a major final? Don't play Novak Djokovic I think is a simple answer and it's very sort of, you know, it's very offhand to sort of say that but you know, you've got someone who's so dominant at the top of the sport. He's not the only player that's had this particular problem. But he's going to try and really crack that Djokovic code. And that's going to be the big thing for him. And I think that in itself is, you know, that's the biggest issue that he's got. Because he's had such a great start to the season. He's done absolutely everything right in the preparation throughout the tournament. Yes, he was pushed by Yannick Sinner in particular on the way through. But he found a way. And he had this steely determination coming in. But he was just dismantled by Djokovic. And... We've said that so many times, not just on this podcast, but on AO Radio and all the analysis as well. And 
Oh, he's just left the studio, so leaving all the fans disappointed. But, you know, he, he just continues to just confound us with it. And for Pass, he's going to set himself up for another big season. He's going to be inside the top five, I think, if he remains healthy. And he's just going to try and find a way to crack that code. And, and that's really the next step and the next level for him. Many have failed along the way, but I think he'll, he'll find a way eventually. Where does this leave Carlos Alcaraz? Because at one level, it means that his great success in the second half of last year may be dismissed as, oh, well, that was the time that Djokovic was off the tour. On the other hand, it sets up the most wonderful intergenerational match if Alcaraz can get fit for the clay court season, because if Alcaraz and Djokovic can meet at Roland Garros, that will be a match and a half. Well, well, first of all, Alcaraz has to get healthy, and that's part of the equation. But, I mean, Alcaraz, he he deserved to win the U.S. Open. It's not easy to be able to come through in those moments. And there was pressure in that moment, too. Both him and Rude were going for the number one spot as well. So even though Djokovic didn't play the event, there's still pressure and tension and, and work ethic and so much that has to go into winning a Grand Slam. It's not easy. So huge credit to Alcaraz for the U.S. Open. I would love to see that rivalry come into come into play because that would be awesome. And I hope Alcaraz is healthy. I think we take for granted that all these players, the way they work, are always going to be healthy, always going to be around. But so much goes into making sure you're 100%. And hopefully Alcaraz will, will be at Roland Garros. I think he's going to be fine. I think he's almost there. And what about Arena Zabalenka? Because the women's uh, champion obviously didn't get the same response as we've got on the uh, on the verge of our podcast recording position. Uh, it wasn't quite as raucous for her, but uh, terrific first Grand Slam title for her. Yeah, I'm very happy for her. I mean, she's put in the, the hard work. She had an incredible offseason. She's got a great team around her. Um, and I think she's she's shown how well she handled the emotions these two weeks. I think that was big for her. In the past, when she's gotten to the semifinals in a few slams, she did get overwhelmed by the moment because she was putting so much pressure on her shoulders. So it was just, it's always nice when you can see a player get to that stage again and make the next step and be able to deal with that pressure, those expectations, because that was the first thing I thought of. I'm like, okay, is she going to come through? Is she going to do it? And she handled it so well. She lost the first set and had to figure out how to turn it around, and I thought she did a great job. Oh, she certainly did. It was a cracking final. I mean, if we have that rivalry going on for a while longer with Elena Rabakina, let's not forget her in all of this. A superb performance, like really high-quality tennis. The winner-to-unforced error ratio off the scale for a final. You'd think they'd be nervous, they'd be tight, been making errors here, there, and everywhere. They didn't happen, and that's why it was such a high-quality match. Right in the balance, right up to the very last point, because Sabalenka had a couple of championship points. Rabakina saved them, um, but she was able to get through in the end, and thoroughly deserved as well. 12 months ago, she was struggling with her serve and her confidence. Now she comes back a completely different player, and she'll take that confidence on. And could be what that one. You've got Schwantek, you've got um, Rabakina, who's going to be inside the top 10 finally. Um, and then you've got Sabalenka as well, but so many other great players who, who are in the mix too. It's going to be a fascinating year for women's tennis again. It is indeed. In the doubles, it was Barbara Krajikova and Katerina Siniakova who took the women's doubles title. That's their seventh major. If they go on like this, they'll start to rival some of the greatest women's doubles pairs 
in the history of tennis. Luisa Stefani and Rafael Matos became the first all-Brazilian pair to win a major, beating the Indian team of Sanya Mirza and Rohan Bapana in the mix. And for the second year running, we had an Australian wildcard pair triumphant in the men's doubles. Rinky Hitchikata and Jason Kubler beating Hugo Nice and Jan Zielinski in the final on a quite stunning match point. Peter, the real human interest story in the men's doubles is Jason Kubler. He's had six operations on a hereditary knee problem and is now a Grand Slam champion. That is such a feel-good factor. He was a number one junior in the world and the hopes were high and then the knees gave up on him. For a while there, I think three years, he could only play on a clay court because his knees couldn't take any other surface. Now we're starting to see, after all this time where he spent time off the tour, he was actually a tennis coach for a little while because he didn't think he would get back. He's back in a big way, and we're starting to see that talent realise. It started at Wimbledon last year. He was able to carry it through in singles. We're seeing it in doubles here, and he's going to have a, another big year, I think. And it deserved... He so deserves it for all the hard work that he's put in and all the problems that he suffered. We're seeing that potential realised now. So I hope he has a really good couple of years and he can you know, stay away from injuries and, and really get that ranking up to where it should be. Well, we'll be hearing from Jason later, but let's first review the main action from the Australian Open 2023. But I think we might be well advised to just find somewhere a little calmer. To watch action from the ATP Tour, download the Tennis TV app or check out the website, tennistv.com. You're listening to the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. Available on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn and atptour.com. Well, as Melbourne Park gets dismantled at the end of a fortnight, we've moved to a slightly quieter spot. We're in one of the interview rooms, but uh, there are no players in here apart from Jill as an ex-player. So, Jill, Peter, let's look at some of the players whose stock has gone up over the past fortnight, starting with the two semi-finalists, Karen Hachanov and Tommy Paul. Good step forward for Karen Hashanov. He played mainly out on the John Kane Arena before coming into Rod Laver Arena. I think he's had some mixed memories there over the years and finally got it all together. And it was one of those things that you were expecting. He's one of those players that's been thereabouts to try and take that next step, gets all the way to a semi-final, comes up against a, a Sitsipas who is so focused and, and determined. And you know, for him, he can take plenty of confidence from what he's, the business he's done. Yeah, I, I mean, obviously it's a great result. He's been to a semifinal before, so to get there again is not easy. I think he's expressed himself how much in a better mental state he is, how much more confident he is. Actually ran into his coach right after he lost to Sitsipas, or like 20 minutes after. And, you know, obviously there's going to be that slight disappointment, but overall very pleased with how, the, how he performed throughout the two weeks and felt like it was a really great tournament. He took a lot of steps forward. So I think that was huge for him to get to the semifinal. It was, it was a great run. Uh, I was watching the semi-final against Tsitsipas and I felt that it was the kind of match that I couldn't see what Hachanov could beat Tsitsipas with. And therefore, if he's going to go on to a final or to win one of the majors, he's going to have to build something a little more into his game. You know, I think he has the weapons to power through opponents. I think he's, you know, he's got that huge serve and huge forehand. To me, the difference was... 
when he, after he won that first set, he kind of squeaked by because Tsitsipas had a little bit of a letdown, I would say, when he was serving for the third set. So, And I think Hachanov realized he got away with one there. And then when he came out, he didn't start the fourth set very great. And I think those small moments make such a big difference. And I think the fact that he get look, the fact that he got to semifinal is fantastic. But those small moments in the semifinal in particular are huge to be able to make that next step. And I don't think he mentally recovered from the fact that like, okay, wow, I'm still in this. I feel like he sort of had the mindset where like he's, I got away with one there. And I think you have to grab that. And that's what like a Djokovic and Nadal do when there's a slip in the other opponent, they grab it. It, They don't care how it happened. They grab it and then they, you know, take momentum from that. And I think talking about Tommy Paul too, uh, again, to have that breakthrough and, and to have the run that he had, he can take plenty of confidence from that. And I mean, we're going to talk about American tennis in a bit more detail as we go along here, and deservedly so. And he was the one that took that step and, I mean, took on a red-hot Novak Djokovic in that semifinal. He had to fight back in that opening set and he did a good job of it, but was was outclassed in the end. But, you know, that ranking goes up, that belief goes up. He's working with Brad Stein, who knows, got a great record of working with players and getting them right to the top. It's quite a compliment, isn't it, that Stein's willing to work with Tommy Paul? Yeah, I, well, I mean, he's done a great job, and he's had he's a very experienced coach. I think he saw the talent of Tommy Paul a long time ago. I think there's been a lot of whether you know Tommy Paul or not, there's been a lot of hype around him since juniors, and so it just took a sometimes it takes a little while for different players to come into their own. And I think that happened with Tommy Paul. I think everyone always knew he was talented. He's one of the top movers of the game. He's so quick. I don't think a lot of people realize how quick he is around the court. But he needed to develop the steel, didn't he? Because he wasn't the most diligent at the end of his junior career. Yeah, I think he's 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 definitely gotten better in that. I think he'll even say that. He's very honest about where he is and where his game is and where his mentality is. That you know, there were moments in that match against Djokovic that I was like, okay, he has what it takes to beat Djokovic, but it's about doing it over and over and over again is is the key for against someone like Djokovic. I mean, Tommy Paul was the leading American, but for me, the two beaten quarterfinalists, Ben Shelton and Sebastian Corder, they're the ones I'm excited about for the future. I'm excited about all of them. I mean, I'm excited about Tommy too. And Fritz, of course, is doing fantastic and Tiafo and there's so many, but Corda's one of my favorites. I've told him that to his face. <laughs> and he, and I think he's one of the most talented. I think he's going to be, in my opinion, a multiple Grand Slam winner. Um, ben Shelton's very exciting. I actually hadn't seen a ton of him. He was about a year ago. He was ranked outside of the top 500. So I love the flair. So I think it, he's smile. new to everybody. I know. And I, you know what? I love the exchange of... Shelton and Paul at the end of that match. And I think, you know, they just hugged each other. They were laughing. They were smiling. And I think that really gave you an indication of why American tennis is so strong right now is because the camaraderie of them. They push each other. They support each other. And I loved that. JJ Wolf, Jensen Brooksby. We could go on and on in terms of the players there. And, you know, you know who's got the hardest job? Davis Cup captain, Mm -hmm. trying to pick an American team to actually go out there and play because you've got so many quality players to choose from. And that's a really, really great position to be in. American tennis never went away. All these doom and gloom, you know, oh, you know, there's the best of American tennis passed by. That was nonsense. Well, they had a particularly golden generation in the 90s. Sampras, Courier, Agassi, Martin and Chang. I mean, those were five very special players. Of course. And, of course, when they retired, they're... 
was going to be that dip and it was a matter of taking time for things to, to come back up again. And I think now we're starting to see that and seeing the volume of players. And as Jill said, they're the ones who are pushing each other because they've spent the time on the ITFs and the challenges and getting to this stage and celebrating the successes of each other. I mean, Sheldon hadn't left the country. To, first time he's left the country and he comes in and he, he has a deep run at the Australian Open. So, yeah, American tennis is going to be fun, not just on the men's side, but on the women's side too. So perhaps this is the right moment to credit some of the unsung heroes of world tennis, the, the development officers. Now, we know that Patrick McEnroe spent, what, 10 years uh, leading the USTA development program. I did a long interview with him at Wimbledon a couple of years ago for the ATP podcast channel. Um, where he was explaining about all the things he did. And at one level, it's terribly technocratic and a bit nerdy. But I just wonder whether the results are now showing in this very exciting and varied generation of young American players. Um, I, I wouldn't have any doubt about that. It it, uh, it can take time. I mean, any any great athlete knows that it's it's a process. It's not going to happen overnight. And I think that the work you put in three, four, five, six, seven years, even longer, sometimes it takes time to show. I, I mean, I agree with Peter. I think the American tennis in particular has been strong for a long time. I mean, we always want that top top 10, top five or whatever. But if you look at the depth overall, I mean, I think that's what you have to look at. You can't just look at a number one. You have to look at the development and the process and everything that goes into it because it is a lot of hard work behind the scenes which you don't get to see, but it takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of work. And so it's great to see that, you know, so many of these names are coming up. Any more names from the singles in the second week? We've obviously featured a few last week's podcast, but Jerzy Lehechka is the obvious one. Mm, yeah, and, and to talk about taking steps forward. And again, you know, talking about programs, the Czech program is just amazing in terms of what they're able to production line isn't it it is time after time after time and you know he was super impressive through and he played united cup as well and we thought okay well we might do something stepped out of that next gen phase and and shows how important that atp next gen tournament is at the end of the year that these players can start it just gives them such a massive springboard into the next year and the year after and the year after that because there's a focus on them and their development just goes um, sky high so look he, he ran into uh, again a red hot city pass he went three sets but what he could take out of this tournament is going to put him in good stead for the rest of the year yeah, I agree. I think the next gen was huge for someone like a Lehechka because you're in an elite eight and that's the first time that you experience sort of the big stage. And it was quite a production. I got the, the I was privileged to be there for the next gen and it was quite a production and they made a big deal out of you. So it gives you just a, a really good understanding of what it is to be on the big stage. You, it's worth having that experience to come into a grand slam like this and he was he was very strong. He got to the finals of the next gen and lost to Brandon Nakashima, but had a great event there. I thought he played very well. He's a very strong player. He's got a lot of power, and I you could see that he wasn't intimidated at all coming into this event. So that's good to see for someone so young. Well, someone who'd love to have featured in the second week of the Australian Open, he did, but not in the singles, is Jason Kubler. We mentioned earlier on that he's a great story in terms of overcoming setbacks. Uh, he won the doubles with the Australian Rinky Hitchikata, and he told Candy Reid before the final that it was experience in the singles six months ago at another Grand Slam which set him up for his run this week. Wimbledon, yeah, don't get me wrong, that was an unbelievable, unbelievable time. I, but I think it also maybe the four weeks before that as well was sort of almost like a transition sort of stage for me. Before that, 
I could barely win matches, to be honest. You know, I had that, you know, if I go back even further, I had that great run in the, in the mixed doubles where mm-hmm. I made the final, but, you know, I wasn't making too many inroads in, in the singles. You know, I was making a second round in a challenge. I had to go back to futures to maybe get some, uh, get some more matches. And then, but then even when I went back to the challenges, I still was struggling to win. So I think maybe the French Open was the first time where I was like, okay, I'm getting some matches now. I'm starting to feel better. I'm starting to get more confident out on court. I'm starting to beat guys that, you know, I had trouble with in the past. And then that sort of led into the, into the Wimbledon thing. Uh, oh, I wouldn't say Wimbledon thing, into the <laughs> Wimbledon run, you know. Um, I, was, I was fortunate enough to, winning, to be winning a lot of matches. So I sort of had that, that winning confidence. And then... I still remember thinking, you know, I was in the second and third round of Wimbledon after qualifying, and I was like, you know, I don't want to lose in the third round. I haven't been losing in the third round, you know. <laughs> I want to, I want to get to the semis. I want to get to the final. I want to get to, to the stage where there's a final behind, you know, whatever. And then, you know, unfortunately, I lost in the fourth round, but you know, he gave me uh, an experience against a top player, one of the, you know, in my opinion, a top five guy on grass. Um, and then he continued to play well, you know, after Wimbledon. Um, but yeah, you know, he gave me that great experience on on a big court. Now that I'm getting a little bit older, I sort of want to tick off those big courts. Um, you know, I'm 29 now, so you know, if I can finish my career and play it on all the big courts, I'll be one happy guy. What do you think happened at Roland Garros that clicked and, and changed your fortunes? To be honest, I, I I'm not sure. Um, I it think wasn't a mate, coaching change. Or? Oh yeah, no, actually, probably a few weeks before French Open, you know, I started working with. Funnily enough, a former Wimbledon doubles champion, um, Stephen Huss. And then I thought with him, we really sort of worked on the mental side. Um, obviously, there was tennis involved as mm. well, but I felt he really helped me sort of understand my own mind. Um, maybe helped me talk about things and help me understand, you know, why I'm thinking things, why I'm feeling this, why I'm feeling that way. Um, you know, I remember a lot of the time he would ask, you know, is there anything on your mind? Is there anything you want to talk about? And then a lot of the time there was that maybe mm. I would brush aside in the past. So I think having more understanding on, on my emotions, on, on why I'm thinking certain things. Um, you know, I'm probably a bit more professional in the side of uh, looking after my body. I've been trying to eat a lot better. Um, I've been trying to um, just make sure I recover, look after, um, you know, just how I'm feeling in general. Um, and then that's sort of really been a, a big help, you know, that, you know, it was a big coincidence that when we started working that the results started coming, but, uh, unfortunately we're not, we're not working together anymore. Um, you know, hopefully in the future we, you know, we can, we can start again. That would be great for me. Um, but yeah, you know, uh, sort of from French open to even now, it sort of just keeps, keeps going, keeps going, keeps going. And Stephen uh, actually does a podcast, doesn't he, where he speaks uh, to Chris Taunts about uh, the analytics of mm, tennis. He does, doesn't he? So yeah. how much do you uh, look into that? <laughs> not, not too <laughs> not much. much. Yeah, I feel like I'm sort of a player that uh, it's a lot on how I feel. Mm. And then, you know, if I, if I can have the coach with me who then can give me certain things, then I actually perform very well. Mm. Um, you know, it's funny, some of our chats before the, before the doubles is, uh, is actually not that much to do about tennis, you know, because with me and Rinky, we're both sort of, we, we play off feel, you know, we play off the energy and then sort of those split-second decisions is sort of, sort of probably what we're good at. But, yeah, no, I definitely, I definitely do see the importance in it. Um, sometimes that can be the difference between winning and losing a match. And then with Hussey, I thought, you know, with that stuff and also with him helping uh, – helping me improve my, my mental sort of aspect mm. um, was big and then I've sort of been able to, to keep that going. 
Yeah, you talked about um, just talking and uh, opening up about your feelings a little bit more. How important is it for your success onto court? Just have that free mind where you're not fretting, you're not panicking, or you're not thinking about something you should have done, perhaps just focusing on the job in hand. Yeah, I, th I think a lot of it has been, um, you know, being, being present. Mm. Um, you know, I, I guess the, a lot of the big change for me in the singles is, you know, I try not to have too much attachment on what's happened in the past. Um, have that sort of big picture of what I want to try and do, what I want to try and accomplish. Maybe, maybe understand a little bit more that, you know, winning and losing is not that controllable, you know. And then if I know I, if I can do certain things that I can control, I'm sort of happy regardless how the result is. So that's sort of been one of the biggest things. Um, yeah, I, I, I weirdly have this like little book now that I, I write down sort of guidelines in the match and what I want to accomplish. And then you know, after the match I look at it, I go, if I, if I try the best I can to do that, those things, regardless of the result, I feel like it's a great day and I keep trying to continue to keep building, keep trying to improve and sort of have that sort of mindset. What a great idea. Did you use that during Wimbledon? Yeah, it actually started um, the week before. We were at a, a challenger event in Ilkley. So <laughs> Ilkley. Yeah. We've and all then, played uh, there. And then I have <laughs> a, you know, a consistent, not consistent, but I always have housing there with the same lady, Jane. Um, and then she's actually very into tennis and she's actually super competitive. So she said, she actually brought up the idea to me um, about this book and then maybe you, uh, you know, write in, write in, and write whatever you want, but stuff you can think about in the match, you know. And I was sort of like, yeah, yeah I'll do it, but I never, never really got it. But then I did it in, during ill because I played doubles there. And then it's funny looking back because just how vague I was in sort of what I would try to do was, and then maybe I'd write two or three things. Okay. And then during Wimbledon, during when it maybe got a little bit crazy because I was quite nervous going <laughs> to the matches where it was almost full pages of, of things to, to try and think of. And then I, I realised, you know, after that, maybe that's, a, maybe that's a bit too much. You know, I probably can't be thinking all that while I'm out mm. there. And then now I sort of feel like I'm at that good stage where, you know, I can write down things that I know will help me, well, hopefully help me uh, perform better mm -hmm. um, and know if I can do that, then regardless how the result is, I'll be happy. So it's more bullet points than an essay these yeah, days. Yeah, well, it was an essay, yeah, but yeah, now, now bullet points. Now I, I sort of, you know, I've been doing it for, you know, just over six months now. So I feel like I'm getting the hang of it, you yeah. know, and, and it, you know, I don't know if that's a, a big reason of why things are going well, but I keep doing it. My, my team at the moment say, you know, when I get the book out, they know I mean business. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I keep doing it. It's actually getting to the stage where I might need another one. Now yeah, I was going to say, how many are you filling up? Yeah, well, I, I tried at one stage I was doing it for every uh, every practice session but then I went oh, maybe maybe that's a bit too much so at the moment I've just, I've just been doing it for matches um, just so I, when, I'm, when I'm out there I can sort of have a bit of a clear mind and, and know what I want to accomplish um, you know luckily now I've got a coach full time Jared Bunt um, on the Gold Coast so you know when we're out practicing he, he normally gives me tips and, and, and things to work on so that's been a bit easier but yeah a new book could be coming soon Jason Kubler talking with Candy Reid and Journaling as an aid to a clear mind on a tennis court, Jill. Is that something you've ever used or perhaps a variation of it? Chris, I've tried everything. <laughs> <laughs> Journaling one was was one of them, yes. Um, no, I I mean that's what you do as an athlete. You try everything to try and to try and get that edge. And I, I did do quite a bit of journaling and I liked what Jason said of the fact that when he started he felt like he looked back on his old notes and felt like, Oh my gosh, I was really vague which I can understand because the journaling that I did was more about um, waking up in the morning and just writing 
five, four to five pages of whatever comes to your head. It doesn't matter. And the point of it was to just get those many thoughts out of your head. And then you go back and look at what you wrote and you realize, okay, you start to understand yourself a little bit better, which is huge for an athlete and for a tennis player to be able to understand the emotions you go through when you're on the court, understand what's happening. And so I found it to be very advantageous as far as me developing as not only as a player, but as a person. So I think it's huge. I think you see a lot of players with their notes, they with little reminders, and it just kind of like zones you back in, locks you back into just simplifying things when you're on the court because it is very easy to all of a sudden have your mind scatter everywhere. So it's I think it's great that he's doing that and he's learning about himself. I think, I think it's just great in general for, for people and for athletes. I mean, this is something from everyday life, isn't it? I mean, yeah. people are encouraged to write a diary every evening just to get clarity in whatever they're doing. I think it's fantastic, yeah. I, I definitely think it's worth doing. So Jason Kubler reaching a showpiece final in Melbourne, as did the Cypriot Marcus Bagdatis back in 2006 when he took on the great Swiss Roger Federer. Bagdatis has been taking part in the Australian Open Legends event and during one of the breathers he took, he told Candy Reid that he still remembers that day very fondly. Yeah, I remember that too, you know, I mean, uh, every time I come to Australia, I always say that, I mean, it's, uh, it's, a, it's like I had a Grand Slam at home, let's say, <laughs> with, uh, with the crowd and... I had my best moments uh, on on a tennis court here uh, in this uh, this Grand Slam, and just always a pleasure being back. And what I remember about the, the whole week only of uh, good emotions, you know. And remembering the final that you know I had my chance. Uh, I was upset in a breakup <laughs> against Roger, but uh, you know couldn't couldn't go till the end. Did you have after you lost that? Um, did you sort of think, oh, I wish I'd done this, or I wish I'd done that? I mean, yeah, there was only one thing. It wasn't, you know, it was the more more mentally, I think I started thinking too much. I started, you know, my, my mind just slipped and started looking at the future, you know. I started seeing that where I was, you know. I got out of my, let's say, bubble where you, you're you not thinking and I started thinking a bit too much about the future and uh, didn't stay in the present and, you know, gave the chance to Roger to you know take his i mean take the opportunity and when you give a small small chance to guys like Roger uh, you know he takes it and he starts playing better and he feels it and and that's what happened yeah you were such a fan favorite as well as you said you sort of felt home from home you won the Australian Open boys as well what did the crowd bring to your tennis it brought energy enthusiasm uh, especially positive energy and love you know just <laughs> love on the court just so excited to play every match and um, yeah, just enjoyed every moment of it, you know, and uh, that's why we play this sport as, uh, you know, this sport especially, you know, I always love playing in front of people, in front of crowds, because I always had a good interaction with, with the crowd and always, you know, I felt that I had fun whenever I was on, on a tennis court with people. So, yeah, it was just uh, just an amazing, amazing, you know, moments of my life were here uh, with this amazing crowd. And uh, Yeah, you were such a showman, weren't you? It just uh, seemed when you got a crowd that the best of you came out. Yeah, because I loved it. I loved uh, playing, competing and especially in front of, you know, any, any big stadiums with lots of people. And like I said, uh, it wasn't like I, I was showing off, but it was just my personality. You know, I love people. <laughs> I love, you know, interacting with people. I love talking to people and hearing their s- stories. And, you know, and I was that kind of person on the court, too. You know, in a way, you know, every every match was, you know, interacting with other 
other people and telling my story and uh, <laughs> that's what that was it yeah did you love the whole life because it is tough traveling and all the different countries you're going to but some people really make the most of it i cannot say i loved it uh, mm. all the time you know it's it, you know it's not all the time very bright when you're traveling <laughs> so much and being alone on tour you know just you're uh, away from your friends family and um you know and sometimes you know you feel like lonely and it's pretty tough especially when you do it for 16 17 years there is it's it's not only ups you know there is a lot of downs and mm. but you know it's part of life it's part of the journey and uh, i absolutely enjoyed every moment of it because you know you, you learn so much and you become the person that i became the person who i am today because of all these experiences and i have what i I, ha I have because of all these experiences <laughs> and all these moments. So, uh, you know, um, yeah, I loved every moment of it. Some people find it hard to transition from such a structured life where there's so much discipline to then retiring where you've sort of got your days, they're very much your own. Did you have trouble with that? Yeah, I mean, it was tough moments for everybody lately. You know, I retired in 2019 and then COVID hit the year after. Mm. So it was kind of a transition that kind of was made alone. I had no choice about it. So, you know, with the lockdowns mm. and all that, it was okay for me, kind of, because I spent time with my family. I spent time with my kids. There was no other things to do, any other commitments. It was just them and us. And unfortunately, this was the way with with COVID. And I actually enjoyed it, enjoyed it, enjoyed time with them and uh, got to know <laughs> my wife <laughs> a bit more. Uh, but uh, yeah, and uh, just happy we, we, you know, we're figuring it out and we are together and, you know, I mean, we're enjoying every moment of it and, and yeah, just, uh, just, uh, yeah, just enjoy it. Your wife, uh, Carolina Sprem, of course. And what does the future hold? Unknown, you know, future is unknown. <laughs> we live in the That's present. True. We, we try to enjoy every moment, you know, we... We try not to plan too much ahead because a lot of things can change, especially mm. we learned that lesson with 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 COVID and we try to live, you know, every moment, every every day and try to take as much as pleasure out of every day and out of every moment with, with the family. And of course, uh, we, we are uh, we are starting an academy soon in Cyprus, a local tennis club which we will try to work with the local kids and uh, try to, you know, improve a bit the level in Cyprus. And why not, you know, help kids uh, achieve their dreams, which is maybe being professional tennis players uh, uh, in the future. Yeah, you really put Cyprus on the map. Have you seen tennis change since you started? A lot of more kids, more people play tennis, definitely. You know, more clubs, more academies, more everything is getting more and more. And, and uh, yeah, that's... Um, yeah, it, it did change. There is so many more people playing. Marcus Bagdatis, and good luck to him for that academy in Cyprus. Interesting that he talked about the Australian Open as a home slam. Incidentally, you can hear an extended version of that interview this coming Wednesday on the ATP podcast channel. We've just got time before we all head off in our various directions to hear from the head honcho here at the Australian Open. Craig Tiley was born in South Africa, went to college in America, coached there. But since 2007, he's been chief executive of Tennis Australia and since 2013, tournament director of the Australian Open. Craig took time out of his busy schedule to sit down with Candy Reid a couple of days ago. We're in your office and you've got a huge uh, fishbowl 
firstly, yeah. of gummy worms and chocolates. Yeah. And I happened to see Ash Barty sneaking in while you weren't here earlier. How many people would you say come into the office daily during the Australian Open? I think we fill that about 20 times a day. So it's, <laughs> so it's a lot everyone does. The players' kids, the, the, the guests' kids come in and... <laughs> And there's not many players that don't go in for a little bit of a candy every day. So, I mean, I think that's, um, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's just an added benefit. People see it through the window and it looks inviting. And you're very open, aren't you? It's very much an open door policy here. It is. We, we, the door's not on. We take the door off. We, we did this. We've been doing this forever, really, in, in, whether it be in the old place or this place. Is we've, you know, forever had an, uh, an open door policy and an open approach to to the event and and uh, and to access and I'm a big believer in um, you know anyone should be able to ask any question any time and uh, and uh, I have a role of being an ultimate decision maker in it and this is the the role of whether whoever which person's in this role of this role and and you know often historically people in these roles have been you know have not been in a position where it's open it, well that's true yeah. it's it's 10:30 on the second Friday here at the Australian Open and. We're done with tennis for the night. This is early for you, isn't it? It's actually a really early night, which is nice. <laughs> but uh, we don't mind the late ones either as well because you, you often get two matches at night and a normal circumstance we're having a men's and women's match now following. And and uh, and I think the um, uh, this is what happens when you sometimes have one match. It can go, I think there was two hours, 20 minutes and three sets. And, but it was a good match. And and uh, we've had some long uh, semifinals as well. We've had, uh, you know, four or five-hour semifinals. So it just, it just always depends. And we had a very uh, late night, didn't we, or an early morning, if you consider it. There were quite a few of us left after Andy Murray won that amazing match at 4.05 a.m. So how much yeah. sleep do you get during the fortnight? Well, I think that, I mean, we've a couple times we've had uh, in the last 15 years, twice we've had a match finish past three, or three, mm. three times a match finish past three. Uh, two on the stadium courts and one on the outside courts, and that, you know, that that'll happen. So you, uh, I think that was nearly a six-hour match that's played, and uh, and I think it, um, uh, you know, obviously as a, as a, the team doesn't get much sleep when you finish that late, but it's kind of like that every night because even if you have a match that finishes one in the morning, then by the time you've you know packed everything up and dealt with the, the players leaving, and that it's two or two thirty, and then you get back at three. 3.30 and then you back up again the next day. So it's, it, But it goes like that for three weeks and, and then at the, end of the, at the end of the three weeks you uh, regroup and get some rest and back to proper exercise. And, and How long does it normal. take you to regroup? Too long. Uh, <laughs> or longer, I should say. But it, uh, look, everyone's in the same boat. But, uh, but it, it does, it's a, I mean, we, we, where the players will have maybe one or two late nights and obviously they're out there physically competing, it's, it's tough. Um, the um, the staff that run the event have it for you know we had the United, we had the pre events the United Cup uh, the qualifying week uh, the, the two main weeks here so they've been five weeks on this on this journey of uh, of pretty intense time. Now you're a hard guy to get an interview with mostly because you're always chatting to someone you're out on court you're very very involved aren't you How no. much do you need to delegate and have people um, do other things for you so you can really concentrate on your job? Yeah, I think the uh, I mean, we've got a team that knows what they do, and and um, and I think the um, you know I, I I like to lead by being really accessible, and and uh, and I'm sure sometimes people think, oh, you get you you get too involved in it, but uh, <laughs> uh, but it's the role. It's the I mean, the role ultimately is to ensure that the 
that the players are getting what they need and what they want and that the, and that the event is running smoothly. And uh, we've got leaders in each of the areas that do a great job and they know what they need to do. And, and, uh, and then ultimately, you know, when there's a player-related issue or question, it comes directly, um, it comes directly up to me right away. So I'm not a believer in people going through layers, players I'm talking about primarily going through mm. layers to try and get an answer. And we'll try and get a position because it just becomes frustrating. So that means it'll have a, a different level of intensity because there's a high, large number of stakeholders to be accountable for. But but I think that's worked well for us, and and it's a it's a pretty flat, you know, organisational model when it comes to d- delivering on the event. But but I'm a believe I'm a believe in a very flat structure when it comes to uh, when it comes to running running events and in real time being able to be very agile. And I'm sure you've learned much over the years. Can you remember in 2013 when you first took the post in your first Australian Open? You must have been very green, a lot of learning to do. Oh, I think you learn every year. Um, I mean, even this year. So every year we do a debrief of the event. You know, after COVID, it was very tough years and did a debrief. You know, what can you do differently? What can you do better? You celebrate what you did well. You identify what you can improve on and you get the team to be mobilized to improve on those things. And this was a year post-COVID. is the first time we've actually come back to a normal event, you know, where we haven't had COVID restrictions and travel restrictions. And, and it's been difficult for the team, a lot of new people, because during COVID we had a high turnover, which most experienced. And, and so, you know, you make mistakes and you learn from them. And, and, and people know that I, I view a mistake as, as a, or an issue as a learning opportunity, uh, not, a, not as, a, as an opportunity to point a finger or to, or to make it difficult for someone. But it's a learning opportunity. As an organization, if you can keep learning as an, as an individual, if you can keep learning, then, uh, then I think you can be able to deliver a better, a better product. There were many areas this, way, this year we did really well and many areas that we can continue to improve. And we'll go through a debrief over the next couple of weeks and figure out what it is. I mean, one of the areas I know the players want feedback is on the schedule. And really interestingly, what's really important in all this stuff is the data and, uh, and the, um, the, the, the points, the number of points, the time that a point takes in tennis over the last five years is only cre- increased 0.2 seconds uh, year on year. Mm. So most pe- people, is, most players are saying points are lasting longer, but actually the data is indicating that the points are not lasting longer. So it's 0.2 seconds. And then, so when we've looked at the time, when we looked at the time that um, it takes for, um, you know, for, for length of matches, there's a number of factors. And, and so it's not the points because that, that, that's evidence, but but it's probably the time between the points. And since we introduced the shot clock or the mm. serve clock, you know, players are realizing they can take the time and the, and the officials are only starting the clock when someone's ready to either return or to serve. And, and as a result, that, um, that, and there's lots of evidence that, and then also in COVID, having to go back and pick up your, ta- your tails, and uh, that has uh, also created um, extra time. So we're seeing extra time not being so much during the point, but we're seeing extra time being between points. So how will that affect affect the schedule, do you think, in the years to come? Well, I think there's... I mean, I would like to start opening up the question is, why don't we have no lets? Mm, or, you I know, like why, that. Why, why do we still have lets? We, we're really old-fashioned having lets. So let's just, just cut to the chase. I was part of the group in college tennis 20 years ago that, mm-hmm. that got rid of lets and took the players two days to get used to it, and then they were, it, it was fine. You know, we still have this warming up with your opponent, which is kind of interesting. Probably the only sport we have a bit of a warm up with your yeah. opponent. Does that take time? 
I think we've got to be more vigilant around the shot, the serve clock, and look at that again. Is twenty five seconds? Well, how about twenty seconds? Maybe right. Bring some time back. Especially off. if it's an ace or a, a return miss or something like may, that. Maybe that. Yeah. May, and and to really have a look at that. Um, I, I've always been intrigued about looking at. You know, we we we've, we over here we've trialed fast four as a format. We've trialed one serve as a format, but. And uh, and I do believe in Grand Slams, three out of five sets is the uniqueness of the of the of the mm-hmm. matches, and two out of three in the woman. I think there's a lot of uniqueness to that. Um, I don't. I'm not. I'm not a believer of that. You play a certain number of uh, sets at the beginning of the tournament, and then increase the number of sets at the end of the tournament. I think that defeats the purpose of uh, you know of the of the battle from the beginning, and and uh, underdogs having an opportunity to have a go. So I think we need, we need to look at the format. But for me, simple things is we know taking the lets out will save some time. Uh, we know being more r- reviewing how we, how we administer the shot clock. Is there a more creative way to manage the towels now with COVID? You have big courts, big stadium courts that have yep. much, much larger backdrops and, and or distances at the back of the court. So let's bring this back out and have the conversation. Let's have the conversation. But again, the data will tell you. The length of the points aren't increasing. Yes. It's marginal, 0.2 seconds year on year, which is nothing. But what is increasing is the time between the points. Now, whether that's recovery time, a lot of players will say because the points are longer, they need more time to recover. But the data is showing the points are not longer uh, and therefore is the recovery time as a result of the shot clock? I don't know. Picking up the tail? I don't know. TV time? I don't know. These are all things we need to look at. I think that can shorten the match. It's also important to understand the actual schedule that's set in each country, and it can be Mm. a bit different. In Australia, for example, uh, showing sport live before 7 o'clock you simply cannot do because 6 to 7 is the news hour, (laughs) and you don't go in the news hour. You get nothing on TV if you go in the news hour. And then, of course, we have a day session, so your day session finishes at 5 or 6. So so there's a lot of things that uh, are going to be considered in it, but... But uh, interestingly, we've just, I've just pulled out the last five years of the schedule and looked at the average time of how late we finish compared to each year, and there's not much difference. Really? Well, it does feel, it does <laughs> feel a lot longer because we had a couple of late nights. Yes. And, uh, and there were some longer matches early. But we also had heat and, and, uh, and rain, which contributed to those really tough, that really tough scheduling period. And, of course, you have to deal with that. Luckily, you have three uh, covered courts, which certainly help. Um, uh, before the tournament begins, how much preparation is there? When do you start preparing for the next Australian Open? Uh, we did already last year. So we, we start we start with a lot of the work um, um, leading into uh, the event proceeding and and um, and now we'll go. Uh, our strategy, uh, our plan, and strategy now is that everyone will take the next four days to pack up the site until Thursday. Then from Friday this week until the following week, everyone gets that entire you know, six working days. It ends up being mm-hmm. about twelve days off, uh, 13, eleven days off, and then um, and then we come back and we go right into our strategy planning, and we d- we then get our operational plan in place. Up until April the seventh, and on April the seventh, we shut the business down for two weeks. Okay. And uh, everyone takes a break. That's our Christmas because we don't get the Christmas period because uh, we're planning with the event. So that those two weeks are it's shut down, and um, and then we come back and we start the operational delivery of the event for the next year. Craig Tiley talking with Candy Reid, and that answers one of the questions I asked last week: Is the time the ball is in play longer? And the answer is hardly at all. So there's clearly an issue now with how much time 
players are taking between points. Exactly. Yes, and that's the reason why the the matches are going longer, and it's, it's something that needs to be looked. It's interesting. He talked about the idea of the lets, and he's throwing well. I've been advocating in. no lets for years, and and to hear Craig Tiley saying we should get rid of the let, I mean, wonderful. Go for it. Well, but again, it goes back to what I was talking about in our previous podcast about let's float the ideas. If we're going to look at the the sport and say if the sport started today, how would we drop the rules and how would we play it? It'd be vastly different to the way it is right now. So let's have the discussion. And I think putting that on the table, you've got someone who's obviously in charge of a major event as the Australian Open saying these sort of things. Let's trial it. Let's have a go. Let's see what works. Let's see what doesn't and move the sport forward. I also like the fact that he said, look, if we have a late night match, you know, yes, it's very tiring for all of us, but it's also a great spectacle. And I thought, yeah, let's not get worried about how long it goes, as long as it's fairly exceptional and enjoy the fact that it's a, you know, a rare sporting spectacle, which only a few hardy souls get to see until the small hours of the morning. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you could argue either way, right? Like it can be tiring, but I think it's also very exciting. So I think it's both. We had a couple people write in from the radio saying that, yeah, but it gets me through my late night shifts, which I never even thought about that. So I'm like, oh, now you want to help those people get through their late night shifts when they're having a shift midnight to 6 a.m. or whatever it is, wherever they are in the world. So um, that that was kind of like, oh, that's exciting. I could see that. So I can see both arguments. Um, to me, the the I don't think I don't feel like the let courts really shorten it that much, do they? I think they do. When you have to redo a serve, especially if you're taking 25 seconds between the ball hitting the top of the net and the start of the next serve. I don't know if they take 25 seconds, though. Do they? I don't know. I like the idea of the no warm up. I think floating that idea, Craig suggested that with your opponent, just warm up on a on a court adjacent to it, then walk out and let's start, let's go. But many of these things happen in world team tennis in the 1970s. The original world team tennis from 74 to 79, they played on courts with coloured squares rather than lines. They didn't warm up with the opposition they warmed up with one of their own teammates there was no actual warm-up itself I mean think of soccer football where imagine you know the opposition striker said to the opponent opposing goalkeeper no oh, just give me a couple of uh, you know crosses to head in or or whatever it's it's crazy it would never happen this is all the podcast all of itself we could I feel that we could do here but and we could have these discussions, you know, over and over. But, you know, others would say, the, the devil's advocates would say, well, that makes the sport unique, isn't it? Unique that the, we, it's exclusive to tennis that that actually occurs. But for me, it's about, okay, let's the spectacle and let's see how we can enhance it. It's not about change for change's sake. It's about enhancing what we've already got to bring more people to the sport. And how do we get towels to players more quickly? Without that's, going back to the ball, kids. Gonna, yeah, that's going to be tough because the courts are so big. Um, I don't know. You can't really pos- position them closer. Peter has a suggestion. Robots. I think we could have robots. The, the towel box comes to the player. It's just on wheels and it's robotically controlled and it just immediately comes out to them and then it goes away into the corner. Can How he, good would that be? Can you turn him off, Jill? <laughs> well, I'm turn not a Peter robot. Off. Turn Peter off or turn the robot off? Well, I don't know. I mean, we haven't got the robot to turn off yet. I don't know. Maybe you can, I don't know. Maybe if it's a quick point, you make the seconds in between shorter. Like if it's a longer point, you give them the 25 seconds. But then if it's a shorter point, you get, I don't know, 15 seconds maybe. I'm not sure. For indoor tournaments, you could have the towels dropping from the ceiling and they towel down and then it just goes straight back up again. I'm trying to turn him off, Chris. (laughs) There's enough material for an entire conference here. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, 
that draws uh, the 2023 Australian Open to a rather imaginative conclusion. Have to ask Jill Cravis and Peter Mercato for, well, how you're going to remember this Australian Open, Peter? Uh, it'll be one it'll be one where the Australian Open returned to where it was prior to COVID. Um, that's the big thing for me. The fact that um, I, I don't know the exact crowd figures, uh, but there would be almost a million people who have come to the event across the three weeks because you include the qualifying as well. And uh, we've started to see over the past year Melbourne come back to life. I mean, it's a great sporting city anyway, but this was kind of the last link in the chain, if you like, because everything else in terms of the big sporting events has returned to you know pretty much that normality, if you want to call it that. This was the last one. And I think walking around the grounds, the atmosphere has been enormous. Um, there's been so much going on. It feels like the event that it did before the world got disrupted. And that's been the big thing for me. Um, on the court, obviously, you know, for me, the women's final was was absolutely sensational. Um, you know, we've seen some great tennis. We've seen some players step forward. And, yeah, and again, it's a happy slam for a reason. And I think the players in particular are very happy that they're down here and, and playing in this event again because it just keeps getting bigger and better every year. I'm not quite sure if there's too much to add to that, but I, I, I do feel like the fans stood out to me quite a bit. I think it was nice to feel that atmosphere again. It looked packed every single night, and it and you could feel it even just sitting out in the stands. It was an amazing atmosphere every single day, every single night. Um, it was great to see the fans back because there were, even walking around the grounds, it was like you couldn't. There was hardly any space, but that was a good thing. It was cons- consistently buzzing. And for me also, it was great for me to see a lot of the Americans push through. I think, uh, you know, all my compatriots doing so well, that's exciting for me. So I love to see that. What I loved about this tournament was that the tennis actually won through. The There weren't stories about the weather. OK, we had a 37 degree day on day two and then it rained in the evening and it drizzled on day three. But by and large, we didn't pay attention to the weather because the temperature was comfortable tennis weather. And even when there were stories around um, the stories of all the Australian withdrawals at the beginning and then the, you know, Djokovic's father in the second week, they all disappeared within 24 hours because actually the tennis took over. And in a way, this is what a Grand Slam tournament should be, where actually what happens on court is your main story. Absolutely. But as we know, the Australian Open is more than just a tennis tournament. It's an event. It takes over Melbourne for two weeks out of the year and it's a special time and so many of the fans who come through, yes, they're tennis fans and they've come from overseas. It's great to have international fans back in, in Melbourne again. Um, but it's also about the event and the things that go on around it too. And there have been so many different activities that have been happening around the tennis tournament itself. And that's another clear sign that, you know, the Australian Open in Melbourne is, is back to where it was. So that's it from the Australian Open. My thanks to Peter and Jill. I'm Chris Bowers and thank you for joining us over the past few weeks. If the post-tennis blues are already starting to set in, don't worry, as we'll be bringing you another podcast next weekend. And in the meantime, there'll be plenty more great interviews appearing on our podcast channel on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and TuneIn. Thanks for listening and goodbye from Melbourne. 